and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about books and ideas and whatever we've been reading recently. My name is Thomas Magby. I am joined as always by Mr. AJ Hannenberg. Yeah. And Mr. Graham Donaldson. Hello. Uh, AJ, that was quite the negative response. <laughs> Screw you guys <laughs> right to the hey, floor. Look, guys, today we're going to talk about uh, uh, The Plague by Camus. I love this book. Really <laughs> big fan of existentialism and your negativity. Oh, I'm so furious. That you're bringing into this conversation. I'm really rejecting. I just want you to know that. Um, so let's um, let's try and kind of get our attitudes up here, AJ, if you could. I've been feeling a little under the weather. Yeah, what's going know. on, buddy? Oh, my word. <laughs> I'm going up. to lose it. <laughs> So Imme- I s- <laughs> immediately before this, I expressed my disapproval with AJ that we were covering existentialism again. Was it disapproval? It was uh, contempt? disdain, yeah, <laughs> contempt, contempt, and disdain. Was- Which, to be fair, from the previous existentialism episodes, that was much more a Graham position than it was a Thomas position. So I just, you know, yeah. Uh, apparently, I've converted both of both. Of you. Well, yeah, maybe my disdain has been spreading ah. like an illness. <laughs> oh, so here we, oh, we're doing segues again. Okay, my good. Word. Uh, but yeah, AJ, you, uh, you're leading today's episode, and uh, I only have positivity and warm uh, feelings toward this topic. So Again, screw you guys. Um, <laughs> first, I wanted to say, hey, we're, we're sorry where you had a, such a long hiatus there. It was primarily my fault. Uh, I had a DJ gig that required you know a full day's attention, and then I also got a weird stomach disaster disease, which leads like plague. happily kind right like into a, our right subject. Right. Yeah. So today we're discussing Camus' The Plague. And we've done Camus before, right? What books have we done before? Do you guys remember? Stranger. We've done The Stranger, Stranger. before. Myth and of Sisyphus. The, the, the myth of Sisyphus. Myth of Sisyphus. <laughs> oh, so man. I've, I've, this isn't the first, you know, my first tangle with Camus, but this one's a little bit different. I don't feel like I have to retread his life. We've already talked about him. I'm not going to talk about existentialism in its whole form again. We're going to talk about some other things today. I have two kind of big general topics. We might not get to the second one. We'll see what happens. Well, we got kind of two big questions, and then this might lead into a second episode, depending on how, how we do with that second question. Yeah, we'll get to the first one. Which the plague deals with? Like, this is a big question answered yes. by this book? Okay. Yes. Big questions from the plague. Are you going to pose it, or are we going to... Like, I want You want to give question. me a minute? No, I don't. I want, I want it episode. right now. I want immediately right now the questions. <laughs> okay, so the plague is about a... It takes place in Oran, which is some place that Camus actually lived during his lifetime. Um, he lived there post-World War II, was editing, I think, a newspaper at the time. And where, where is this place? Algeria? No, oh, okay. So North Africa. Yeah, North Africa. I think it's in French Algeria, actually. Uh, so basic summary of the book. I'm not going to give too much to you. This is one that you could happily go read on your own. I don't think there's any reason to retread the entire plot. The plot is fairly straightforward, uh, especially considering that you yourselves have just been through a plague. What happens is rats begin to die all over the town, and then eventually it spreads to dogs, and then eventually it spreads to people, and it turns out it's the bubonic plague, right? A bubonic plague, and it outbreaks in 1940 blank, right? Just some, some vague date in the 40s. <coughs> and then the officials of the town do very little to stop the plague. They ignore it for a really long time, sort of pretend it's not happening, and the book centers around the main character, Dr. Ryu. Dr. Ryu does his very best to get the people at the top moving, but he doesn't expend most of his energy there. Most of his energy is spent directly with patients. But he and the other doctors know that the death tolls are rising at an alarming rate, and eventually they close the town, and we get into plague proper. Stuff gets worse and worse and worse. More and more people die, and it just sort of chronicles the life cycle of a plague. And so if you, you know, having having just lived through COVID-19, you are all generally familiar with this, except ours wasn't quite so deadly, right? The the stuff that comes along with the plague was far more severe in the book. Now, he works with another guy named uh, Taru, 
who is kind of a historian. He lives in the town and hangs out with artists and just sort of chronicles what's happening there. And he and Teru do their very best to work against the plague as civilians, right? The doctor, uh, Ryu, by the way, has a wife who is vaguely referred to as being in a an asylum. And I think in the book, it's supposed to be an illness. This was actually something that happened to Camus as well. He had had an affair. His wife sort of had a breakdown and he had to send her to an asylum for a short period of time. So this is, I, I'm, I'm guessing that Camus himself sort of identi- identifies with the primary character of Dr. Ryu. Now, this book on the whole is an allegory for World War II. Okay. You, you think it's just about an illness, but it's not really about an illness. Here's a little... It's like ex- the slow encroachment of a, of a conflict, and then all of a sudden, like, it's happening, and you can't get yeah, out of it. Yeah, and, and the people kind of ignore it, and then all... It's, it sort of chronicles... I mean, it's, it's an honest chronicling of what would happen during a plague, but there are a lot of parallels to, to what would happen in a World War II scenario, right? Gotcha. The town is closed, no one's allowed to leave, there are people trying to escape, everyone misses their loved ones, right? It's, sure. it's very similar. Eventually, you have a really arresting scene. I'm not going to read that scene, but it's where they run out of hospital space and they run out of ways to bury all of the people that are dying. Right? They just don't have... I mean, they, they streamline funerals to the point where they're tossed, chucking them in a casket, driving them to the thing, getting them in the ground, getting back in like half an hour's time. They have to do it really fast because they need to get the body out of, out of everything. Eventually, they run out of space and they have to open these big pit graves and then burn people. Sure. And so the ash from the burned victims comes and settles over the town. And obviously, it's a reference to the Holocaust, right? that sort of thing. Here's a little section just to kind of prove to you that it's more talking about World War II than it is strictly about general war. Yeah. Okay. It's so here's a section. This is after the plague has stopped and the people are, are sort of coming back to normal life, right? They're starting to get into the streets. The lovers are together. Everyone is just sort of free and open with their life because they've just escaped this horrible thing. And here, so, so here, a quote from the book, they calmly denied, let me see, uh, yeah, they calmly denied in the teeth of the evidence that we had ever known a crazy world in which men were killed off like flies, or that precise savagery that calculated, that calculated frenzy of the plague, which instilled an odious freedom as to all that was not the here and now, or those charnel house stenches which stupefied whom they did not kill. In short, They denied that we had ever been that hag-ridden populace, a part of which was daily fed into a furnace and went up in oily fumes while the rest, in shackled impotence, waited their turn. Mm. Right? Does that sound like World War II or a plague? Right? That's... It's pretty close. So, real quick, I'm going to read sort of the attitude of Taru and the doctor. Taru and the doctor are having a conversation, and Taru says... Have you ever heard a woman scream never with her last gasp? Well, I have. And then I saw that I could never get hardened to it. I was young then, and I was outraged by the whole scheme of things, or so I thought. Subsequently, I grew more modest. Only I've never managed to get used to seeing people die. That's all I know. Yet, after all, Ryu fell silent and sat down. He felt his mouth dry. After all? Teru prompted him softly. After all, the doctor repeated, then hesitated again, fixing his eyes on Taru. It's something that a man of your sort can understand most likely, but since the order of the world is shaped by death, mightn't it be better for God if we refuse to believe in him and struggle with all our might against death without raising our eyes toward the heaven where he sits in silence? Taru nodded. Yes, but your victories will never be lasting. That's all. Ryu's face darkened. Yes, I know that, but it's no reason for giving up the struggle. So these two men neither really believers in God, sort of struggle together against the onslaught of death. Taru organizes civilian kind of like crack troops to take care of people. They open up new hospitals. They organize the burial of the dead. All the while, 
knowing that this is great risk to themselves. They will probably themselves get the disease, but they see the struggling and all they can do is struggle against the onslaught of death, even if those victories are short-lasting, right? Everybody dies. Yeah. Okay. You guys with me so far? Yeah. Are this from the beginning of the book? Isn't there, there's a religious character in the book, isn't there? There is a religious, that's, that's question number two. Okay. So there's a few Sorry. religious characters. There's a, a couple of priests, and question number two revolves around two of the sermons that are delivered. Okay. Um, I am apologize to the audience. I'm going to read some excerpts from this because I think, like with all existentialist writing, it's much better coming from, it's sort of a, not just a strict idea kind of thing. It comes from the feeling of the text. Yep. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of the background of Teru. And then the second question revolves around the, the two sermons preached by the priest. Okay. So we'll go through those. All right. So here is uh, kind of at the near the end of the book, Teru and the doctor decide to go out and take a break from everything. They're both exhausted, run down by the plague. It's getting near to the end and the death tolls are just astronomical and they decide to sort of have a chat about each other, right? They've never really sat down and gotten to know each other as friends. So Taru tells his background. It begins with him talking about his dad, who's the kind of guy who reads train manuals, but you know, the, when trains arrive and when they leave, he can tell you which train goes where and how to know. get to specific places. He had it by his bedside. His, his dad was that kind of guy. He was also a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So he goes to watch his dad. He's really excited. He sees this guy condemned to death, and rightfully so. He was a criminal. And Taru is disgusted. He says, I could not look at my father anymore, having known that this person was going to be condemned to die. I, I thought of it as murder. Mm-hmm. So he runs away from home. He can never go back to his mother or his father. Um, and then... Wait, wait, wait. Sorry. I feel like I just missed something. What, what is, who is the, how is his father involved with this? His father was the lawyer that argued the lawyer. for this gotcha, man's gotcha, death. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So... Father was there, argued for this man's death. The man died. And then Teru's like, I can't, I can't be around you. I can't look at you. I can't even think about trains anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm gone. So I'm going to read sort of the rest of his story about his young life. And then we will talk about the afternoon. I've had to dwell on my start in life since for me, it really was the start of everything. I'll get on more quickly now. I came to grips with poverty when I was 18 after an easy life till then. I tried all sorts of jobs and I didn't do too badly. But my real interest in life was the death penalty. I wanted to square accounts with that poor blind owl in the dock, the guy who died. So I became an agitator, as they say. I didn't want to be pestiferous, that's all. To my mind, the social order around me was based on the death sentence, and by fighting the established order, I'd be fighting against murder. That was my view. Others had told me so, and I still think that this belief of mine was substantially true. I joined forces with a group of people I then liked, and indeed have never ceased to like, I spent many years in close cooperation with them, and there's not a country in Europe in whose struggles I haven't played a part. But that's another story. Needless to say, I knew that we too, on occasion, passed sentences of death. But I was told that these few deaths were inevitable for the building up of a new world in which murder would cease to be. That was also true up to a point. And maybe I'm not capable of standing fast where that order of truce is concerned. Whatever the explanation, I hesitated. But then I remembered that miserable owl in the dock, and it enabled me to keep on. Until the day when I was present at an execution. It was in Hungary. And exactly the same dazed horror that I'd experienced as as a youngster made everything real before my eyes. Have you ever seen a man shot by firing squad? No, of course not. The spectators are handpicked, and it's like a private party. You need an invitation. The result is that you've gleaned your ideas about it from books and pictures. A post, a blindfolded man, some soldiers in the offing. But the real thing isn't a bit like that. Do you know the firing squad stands only a yard and a half from the condemned man? 
Do you know that if the victim took two steps forward, his chest would touch the rifles? Do you know that at this short range, the soldiers concentrate their fire on the region of the heart and their bullets make a hole into which you could thrust your fist? No, you didn't know all that. Those things that are never spoken of. For the plague-stricken, their peace of mind is more important than human life. Decent folks must be allowed to sleep easy at nights, mustn't they? Really, it would be shockingly bad taste to linger on such details. That's common knowledge. But personally, I've never been able to sleep well since then. The bad taste remaining in my mouth, and I've kept lingering on the details, brooding over them. And thus, I came to understand that I, anyhow, had had plague through all those long years, which, paradoxically enough, I believed with all my soul that I was fighting it. I learned that I had an indirect hand in the deaths of thousands of people, that I'd even brought about their deaths by approving of acts and principles which could only end that way. Others did not seem embarrassed by such thoughts, or anyhow never voiced them of their own accord. But I was different. What I'd come to know stuck in my gorge. I was with them, and yet I was alone. When I spoke of these matters, they told me not to be so squeamish. I should remember that great issues were at stake. And they advanced arguments, often quite impressive ones, to make me swallow what nonetheless I couldn't bring myself to stomach. I replied with the most eminent of the plague-stricken, the men who wear red robes, also have excellent arguments to justify what they do. And once I admitted the arguments of necessity and force majeure put forward by the less eminent, I couldn't reject those of the eminent. To which they retorted that the surest way of playing the game of the red robes was to leave to them the monopoly of the death penalty. I, I, I believe that's people in the courts, right? People in the red robes. My reply to this was that if you gave in once, there was no reason for not continuing to give in. It seems to me that history has borne me out. Today, there's a sort of competition who will kill the most. They're all mad over murder, and they couldn't stop killing men even if they wanted to. In any case, my concern was not with arguments. It was with the poor owl, with that foul procedure whereby dirty mouths stinking of plague told a fettered man that he was going to die, and scientifically arranged things so that he should die, after nights and nights of mental torture while he waited to be murdered in cold blood. My concern was with that hole in a man's chest, and I told myself that meanwhile, so far anyhow as I was concerned, nothing in the world would induce me to accept any argument that justified such butcheries. Yes, I chose to be blindly obstinate, pending the day when I could see my way more clearly. I'm still of the same mind. For many years I've been ashamed, mortally ashamed of having been, even with the best intentions, even at many removes, a murderer in my turn. As time went on, I merely learned that even those who were better than the rest could not keep themselves nowadays from killing or letting others kill, because such is the logic by which we live, and that we can't stir a finger in this world without the risk of bringing death to somebody. Yes, I've been ashamed ever since. I've realized that we all have plague, and I've lost my peace. And today I'm still trying to find it, still trying to understand all those others and not to be the mortal enemy of anyone. I only know that one, what, that one must do what one can to cease being plague-stricken, and that's the only way in which we can hope for some peace, or failing that, a decent death. This and only this can bring relief to men, and if not save them, at least do them the least harm possible, and even sometimes a little good. So that is why I resolve to have no truck with anything which, directly or indirectly, for good reasons or bad, brings death to any, anyone or justifies others putting him to death. That, too, is why this epidemic has taught me nothing new except that I must fight it at your side. I know positively. Yes, Ryu, I can say I know the world inside and out, as you may see, that each of us has the plague within him. No one, no one on earth is free from it. 
And I know too that we must keep endless watch on ourselves lest in a careless moment we breathe in someone's face and fasten the infection on him. What's natural is the microbe. All the rest, health, integrity, purity, if you like, is a product of the human will, of a vigilance that must never falter. The good man, the man who infects hardly anyone, is the man who has the fewest lapses of attention. And so on. So this is, I think that's where I can stop here. His, his essential point is that this guy was an activist against, against the death penalty, yep. but merely in being an activist, he had to sanction killing, right? To, to make what he wanted to stop, stop. Wait, why? Uh, because in activism against like changing the current order involved the deaths of a few people to make it happen. Oh, he had to like blow up a car or something? Yeah, something like that. Oh, or at okay. least sanction it. Like his, his sect was so he was like that sort of thing. So he was an activist like how the black hand was an activist. Like he's yeah. one of those. He's the real, real deal activism, right. not just standing on a street corner with a sign. Gotcha. So he was like, you know, in French basements with with smoky bars plotting, like, assassinations of dukes. It is funny how accurate that is, because during World War II, he actually edited the rebellious newspaper, the underground newspaper. He was involved with the rebellion. And so Camus himself was a part of this. And this came, of course, written after World War II had ended. Okay. And so he is, I think Camus is probably taking another view of what he had done and said, I had to sanction death too. And so note that the use of plague here isn't just used to mean the microbe. Yeah, what is it? Plague means the attitude whereby you want something happening, so you sanction the death of another. Plague is the willingness to kill other men. Yeah, is it that specific? Or is it just, is it like a, like, is he just talking about sin? In this context, that is the plague. Okay. The plague okay. is where the infection whereby you sanction the deaths of other men. You have a vision of something better in the future and you're and you're willing to kill people in the present for that to happen. Yes. That's the plague. Okay. So okay. extra context. Sure. Ooh. While he was in Oran, the place where he wrote this thing, mm-hmm. um, the French had occupied Algeria, right? That was French Algeria. Okay. And he, the... The French-Algerian War was still one of the is still one of the bloodiest wars that has ever happened when Algeria tried to gain independence from the French. Um, I don't know how that turned out. I don't really know the history. I do know that initially Camus had tried to broker a peace between all these people, and people protested his speeches and called for him to be hung on the gallows. And eventually, he withdrew from public life and just said, "I'm done with it." Um, and a direct quote from him is, "Let's see." Oh, please tell me I wrote it down. Oh, here it is. Um, when speech can lead the remor- lead to the remorseless disposal... Let me try that one more time. When speech can lead to the remorseless disposal of other people's lives, he would go on to say, silence is not a negative position after resigning from the express and remaining sin- silent about it. So he got away from the newspaper, said, I'm kind of done with this, and then said, because my speech could lead to the killing of others, my silence is not a negative position. I am simply maintaining my silence to sort of get out of this. And that's the position that Tarut takes and Dr. Ryu take in the book because they, they don't actively try to make the administration take responsibility for anything. They simply fight against the deaths of men. It is the role of sympathy. They're trying essentially to become saints, even if they don't believe in God, right? How to become a saint without believing in God is the question. Um, so I guess my question to you guys is, is that the reaction that men should take? Should you take sides on an issue which will require the deaths of other men? Or is the only sensible position to withdraw from the discussion and maintain silence? 
I think you can to- I think you can spread the plague. No, I think you can take the side where you can sanction the death of other, the death of other men. Um, sounds like this first doctor. What was his name? Taru. Uh, well, Ryu. there's Ryu, who's Ryu, the doctor, and, and then there's Taru, who's the historian. Taru, who's so, and Taru was the one who like was not cool with his dad being yeah, a lawyer. Not cool with any sort of. Death. So I mean, I I understand the immediate sort of sense of oh my goodness this person is going this this creature is going to die or this you know but the the other the other side of that coin is either either abandoning any sort of form of justice or doing some sort of punishment that isn't a death but is locking someone away for the rest of their life which is as um i mean that's essentially what we're doing now isn't it uh, yeah, that, that's not my. I mean, would you prefer death penalty? I th- I I don't have the same. Death is the final, most terrible thing that should be avoided at all costs. Kind of squeamishness that they do, uh, and that's probably born out of a sense of the afterlife. Um, I know it's it's maybe a little. Um, what's what I'm looking for. Maybe it's a little too hand-wavy to say, but I've always really enjoyed when C.S. Lewis talks about, like, two soldiers who are fighting a war they don't really want to fight and they end up killing each other, having a good laugh about it uh, in the afterlife. Like, I have more... That, to me, is more of an ascribing... um, Yeah, that sort of sentiment I, I, I find a lot more sort of attractive than, like, death is... Like, death is the end and we must fight everything against it. It's... I mean, I just started thinking about this when you said, in order to frame the argument, I actually need to read the text because the way that the text presents it is part of the argument. And that to me just sounds like this is an argument that's going to be based on sentimentality, an argument that's going to be based on moving of the emotions through language as opposed to saying, let's strip back all the facts and like, you know, ask ourselves, all right, do we want a society where... Uh, there's justice, yes or no? Well, yes, we do. Okay, so um, is the death penalty, uh, 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 is there a, a, a potential where the death of somebody is the only possible outcome that needs, needs to happen? And then you can have that debate saying, no, there isn't, or yes, there is. But if you if you take sort of the existentialist and, and bring it down into that kind of like language and strip it of its sentimentality, then I, I, <laughs> existentialism to me like loses its... It loses its power or its spell. You're going to love this, but isn't sentimentality like part of human life? Like if our emotions are moved, doesn't that say something about the argument? Sure. Uh, but, it, but it doesn't, um, it's not the, it's not, I don't think it's the deciding factor. I mean, the, the movement of the emotions is not the, is not the, um, the solid ground upon which to build policy or government decisions or judicial decisions or um, like, if the men, if, if everybody in World War II was Camus and they said, like, being quiet is an answer and they all, like, retreated off into their little chateaus in the woods, um, evil men would have their heyday in this world. And, that, and that's, that's, I think, the, the point is, is that uh, the existentialists don't have any sort of belief in altruism, that they don't have any sort of altruism, that, that good men will sacrifice themselves for good reasons, um, um, so, you know, so yeah, their argument is, is I'm going to what, like abstain from life as like a rejection or as like a, you know, middle finger to God or whatever. Isn't that kind of what's happening in this story though? Just the Mm -hmm. way you're like Ryu and Tarot are 
Um, I think you described kind of this optimism at first. There's kind of a freedom that they can experience in the city, but they're committing their time to like helping people. They're trying to, to help people recover from the plague, but there are other characters who aren't. There are other characters who are profiting off of this, this, one specifically starts smuggling and is or, making or the religious of people dash. who are kind of gathering followers during this kind of just uh, people stop kind of stop going to church because they, they get sick of the whole like yeah God is punishing you thing. Um, but I'm, I'm just wondering if if this story is a part of Camus' answer to what Graham is is posing that there are still heroes in the story that Tarot ends the story as a hero correct. Taru is the hero, but because, and I think maybe this is the answer to yours, Graham, is that you can labor against those terrible things without being like championing one side that means death. And so, for example, in the French-Algerian War, I can take part in it, but I would try to take part as a healer, someone who drags men off the battlefield, nurses them back to health. And which then is what these two way. are doing, right? Which is what these two are doing, right? They're not sitting on the sidelines. They haven't retreated. They are in the thick of it, but they aren't blowing up the governor's house because the governor isn't doing anything about it. They're not spreading the plague. They are simply taking a secondary role and trying to preserve human dignity in a time of darkness. Are you pacifist, AJ? Do you think, is there a just war in your mind? You know, I have not solved this question for myself. We've talked about this some. I used to be a pacifist back in the day. Yeah. I don't think I'm a pacifist. Okay. But I want you to tell me why. Why, why should I join a side and pick up a gun rather than being the medic dragging people off the battlefield? Um, well, one, because there needs to be someone, there, there eventually needs to be somebody who's holding, who's picking up the gun to stop whatever force, whatever force is coming, especially if that force is, is quite clearly in the wrong. Um, and so, I mean, that, that to me is enough of the argument is that they're, they're, um, um, Part of me wants to say, like, who am I that gets to sort of have the privileged position of, of getting to stand up and say, I'm not sullying my hands with this human bat, with this human conflict. I'm going to be the healer only. Like, part of me is like, that seems, I don't know, um, that kind of, like, moral superiority seems like, if I was a guy getting dragged off by the medic after getting wounded, the medic's like, I'm only, I'm doing this because I couldn't even see myself entering into your bestial human conflict. I'd be like, you know what, guys, screw you. Like, <laughs> I want somebody who's in this with me. But I will take the morphine. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I want somebody that's like, you know, uh, uh, is, is aligned with me on this. You're not just sort of like, um, do you get my point? Sort of, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you take, the only way you can take moral superiority is because there are people holding the guns. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it, uh, to me, the existentialist sounds like he is, this is going to sound really bad, but he is really like leaning into the privilege he has of not having to be a soldier or not having to be a common person going off and, and, and getting caught up in the, in the cares and concerns of this world. He has um, this sort of opting out sense. But to do that, if you're going to opt out, that means you're going to abandon your family and you're going to abandon your loved ones and you're going to have to be like an isolated person who has nobody else or nothing to fight for because you wouldn't fight for them because you hold this position of, I want to sort of opt out of spreading the plague of really condemning any other man to death. When if that man is like in your house and is like approaching your wife and you're like, oh man, I just can't bring myself to... To I mean, you force break his death knees, on somebody else. Again, but that seems to be another, like, 
it's still in, the, in the moment, yeah, I don't think you can go at somebody and say, I'm only going to have this, um, I'm only going to sort of allow myself to have a proportional violence in order to protect my loved one. I think you go all in. Uh, anyway, that's my, my that's, that's, okay, yeah. I hear you, but if we're talking about what attitude would you like to spread worldwide, right? The continuous, like, I must take up arms against this opposing force. If everyone has that attitude, people keep dying. If everyone, like, as if I'm going to take an example of of the attitude I would like to see everyone have, the attitude of human dignity, preservation of life, and sympathy helping rather than hurting, if that were to spread, then we don't have those problems anymore, right? Yeah, like but, of course you want the world where pacifism is the answer, right? Like yes. that's what you're getting at. But yeah. not if the only way to get there is a detachment from humanity. And that's... that's I would the, call that attachment. Why would that be detachment? Because you're saying I'm... Um, uh, basically the existentialist has a like, it's all or nothing. Like everyone needs to be perfect for me to opt in. And when there is human imperfection, I am not going to opt into humanity because I don't want to be culpable for the imperfections that the race has. Can you explain what you mean? So do you mean by opting in, do you mean like taking up a side? I mean, I mean by opting in, I mean like, yeah, I mean, uh, because they're um, opting in, right? He's the one he is trying to help. He's just not helping in a way that means the deaths of others. Um, he's the one on the front lines of the plague. Just as if I was in, say, World War II, I could be there helping the injured, helping the downtrodden, making sure people get food. I could even perhaps yeah, hide. Is, Ju- I could even perhaps hide Jews. What is my problem at my own it? risk? I guess my problem with it is then you're also not cheering on those who are doing the things that you're unwilling to do to bring about the bright ending, which is the fighting. Because you want to celebrate the over, overthrowing of the Nazis in Germany, but not actually take up arms against them, right? That's yeah. the contradiction. And so then, and so if you're going to wag your finger at, at people about the men who come home and you're like, you did what to, yeah. to, to solve this war? You, you, you know, firebombed Dresden, like, um, and to say, like, this, it's not even worth winning or it's right. not even worth defeating fascism if that's going to be the price it costs. It's like, I don't know, man. I don't know if you can – like, that, that, that seems to be a, a position that you can only take once you've won and you're safe. Or you can say, I wish this had spread to everybody. I wish we didn't have to carpet bomb Dresden because I want sure. both the Nazis sure. and my side to put down their arms. Which is fine, yeah. Can sure. I can I bring up a, yeah, go for something it. I've heard you say a few go times? Go hug a Nazi and see how, you know, like it's, 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 uh, it's they know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying it's, it's, that's just, it seems very like uh, naive to say like, oh man, I just wish that everything was perfect. And when, and in order to, and so I'm going to have a moral, a sense of sort of moral superiority, superiority over those people who have gone off and have, I guess, I guess it's like, okay, you have the soldier and the soldier believes in his country sure. and he has, and he's been, he's brought up and he's been, he, he's pledge of allegiance and he loves the flag and he goes off and he has a belief in the idea of what is America and he goes off and he is told that this is the right, this is a, a, a course of action and your country needs you to go off and do this. And he does. And when he's there, the horrors and the reality of war happen and bad things happen to him and he has to do bad things. And he comes back and everyone's like, what are you, some kind of moron for believing this? I can't believe you went off and did such terrible things. 
oh, it's almost, I would rather us not even be involved in this kind of stuff. That to me is so, um, like two-faced, like, like I, I, and I guess that's what it is, is, is I, I realize that my position is boiling down to why can't the existentialists just support the troops? <laughs> um, but there is sort of part of it because he's giving himself an intellectual out for um, um, supporting people who are going off and doing something with just the same I'm trying to fix it mindset that he has. They're just doing it a different way. They're just that, doing that, it a different the way, way that they do it is what he has a problem with. Yes, and the way that they're doing it, he has a problem with. And so then if he wants to say, like, I don't want to be involved in anything that involves killing in this world, well, then it's like, well, you know, sorry, buddy. Like, like, like this is the world, like the world that we live in has, has violence in it. So you, you take, like, a Machiavellian stance? It's what's practical? Kind of. A Ma- Machiavellian stance is also aligned with the idea that, like, Oh, quick promo. That we have de- a Machiavellian episode. If a you want to hear right. about go Machiavelli, go back and check it out. That that death is not the worst sin that can befall me. Okay, so I think that is probably the crux of your difference with Camus, is that human death is for him the ultimate evil. Yeah. And for you, it's not it's not that. It's not that. It's simply a blip in the timeline. Like, could you how would you live with yourself if a terrible thing happened to your loved ones? And you had the capacity to stop it, and you didn't stop it, not because you were a coward, but because of, like, I don't know, like an intellectual, uh, like you sort of have said, I hold up the, you know, uh, th- this, this so violent person doing violence in my home. I cannot take their life, so I'm going to allow them to take the life of an innocent. And So you're against martyrdom? Um, no, I'm against... I'm, I'm, I'm against um, that pacifism that allows innocence to suffer when you have the capacity to stop it. Okay, I, I feel like we're... Can I just it's clarify kind of, it's, on the martyrdom? Uh, martyrdom is being killed for the sake of your faith, yeah. not necessarily because someone breaks into your, your house innocence. and is stealing your things. Mm-hmm. The, just those would be different mm-hmm. situations. But in this case, this is essentially his faith. He says, I don't want to be involved in the killing of other men. And so I'm not going to kill you, and that is what I will be martyred for. Okay. <laughs> don't just dismiss it. You have to tangle with faith it. Faith in like, what? No. A, I don't. Have, I mean, uh, his position that yeah. stance of the, the, the radical uh, uh, pacifism or radical yeah. absolute sanctity of human life. Yeah. Um, I guess that's or only is it just that you don't think that is a thing worth being martyred for. Uh, kind of, and also um, uh, that uh, maybe there's only any sort of credence to that. Maybe that's like the highest you can get with being an atheist. Um, um, is human life sanctity? Um, but for no other reason than a fear of death. Yeah, I'm with you on that. There's no grounding in the human sanctity in some sort of Imago Dei or the grounding of the human sanctity in anything. It's human life is sacred because of the tremendous fear of the unknown of death. And therefore, we got to keep every, anything from, from ever appro- approaching death. And that is no way to live. You're right. The, so the book doesn't really attempt to say here is why human beings are are, you know, sanct- I don't want to say sanctified. Special. Sacred. Uh, sacred, yeah. Here's, here's why human life is a, a sacred thing. They, uh, this is where I think the appeal to emotion kind of comes in because mm-hmm. we do have a really arresting scene where a kid dies and all of them are gathered around this poor child who is fighting plague and then eventually succumbs to it. Mm-hmm. That's rough. And then we also have the death of Taru, spoiler, near the end of the book. It's okay, it's still a good book. You should still read it. And 
And both of those scenes are so heart-wrenching that I think it is, it is that, that heart-wrenching quality of death that compels you as an atheist to, to fight against it. And you know what? I don't have a huge problem with that. Death is a pretty scary thing, right? If, if that's the thing, the place where you land as an atheist is that human life is worthwhile and I should fight for it, that's a, you know, there's other places you could end as an atheist that are far worse than that. And but yeah. I'm but I'm with you in in saying that there doesn't seem to be good reason for it outside that we just really don't like death. I contrast this with another book that deals with a healer who is healing during the plague, and um, it's a, a book. It's a Russian book that was translated to English, and it came out I think in 2015. It's called Loris. Yep. And he, it's exactly it's a similar story, except it's in the 16th century or 15th century. And Loris is a medicine man, and he heals people of the plague in his little Russian village. And he seems to have a particularly special ability to heal based through his faith and his prayers. And he can almost like take the illness from the person and take it on himself. And then um, sort of he takes on the suffering instead. Um, and he ends up healing the, like the, the, the daughter of the head of the town and all this sort of stuff. And in it, his motivation is his, you know, his belief in, in that everybody is made in the image of God and he will touch the leper and he will also heal the, the, the king's daughter and, and everybody is sort of has that equality in, in, in his eyes and, and he's going through the healing and it comes from the fact that when he was young, there was a woman that he loved who had a child that he couldn't heal. Um, anyway, and I just think of like that kind of saintly motivation Versus the, the the, oh man, screw we're, God, I'm gonna fight against. Well, death. not just screw God, but it's also the like, oh man, we're never gonna win. But how honorable it is to be fighting death. It's like, okay, uh, fine. That that there's there's a sense of like maybe it's just a sense. What I don't like about it is the romanticism of it. But um, but there's that. But I mean, in the faith, at least for Loris or in the Christian faith, there's the idea of that one day death will be defeated. And in the meantime, we are fighting the, the death throes of death that exist in the world still. And so when you are when you are with someone who dies, it's not this great big like, oh, you got another one, death. Man, this like, this, you know, you, you know, we're never going to win this war. It's uh, this person has died and one day we will see them again and you pray over them. And um, and, you know, there's the old. Uh, the soul claps its hands on its way to heaven, right? Like that's, there. That that to me is such a, um, the reality of life after death colors everything. It really does. I agree with you. I was going to bring up. We used to do a question in senior thesis where it was if we all got plunked onto an island, Hunger Games style, and had to murder everybody. What would be your plan? Mm-hmm. Mine was mine was always go real weird because nobody tangles with the crazy guy that's willing to maim you and not kill you. So I would do some maiming. Dang. It got, I got oh real gosh. dark real fast. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Graham, no one wants to go there. Yeah, if, sure. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Graham's was, I will always, I will stand in the middle and call all of you to something higher. Should not <laughs> Did be. I actually say that? Yes. I do this not was remember all, this. This was your answer for years <laughs> that so, you would so stand in the middle of yeah. it and you would call everyone to the nobility of humankind and encourage them not to kill one another for first. the sake of entertainment. And I get cut down first. first. And you, of course you get cut down. Does not that bear a striking similarity to... <laughs> Calling men towards something higher and not what wanting call- to engage in violence. But what are they calling us to? What's he? What is Cam? What is the Doctor Ryu and Tamu, whatever his name is, calling Death us? Death penalty. Not murder. 
That's it. To, that's it. Is yes. not yeah. is is do no harm. And what are yeah. you calling them to Same in thing. the Hunger Games place? Don't murder each other. Oh, um, but, the, but the, okay. But you know, <laughs> but in the Hunger Games scenario, like we that's the game. Yeah. We can't get out of the game. Um, kind of like you, life, you know. Yeah, sort of like get, life. Can't really get similar. Out of this game. But the whole game of life is not murder or don't murder. Those aren't the only two options that exist. Sure. I guess like, I'm not seeing the. There is a tremendous amount of dehumanizing and hatred you can bear to somebody and keeping them alive. So or, is your problem that he it's not an all-encompassing thing that he's promoting? Like the problem is it's too small. So he's opposed to the death penalty. Yeah. Willing to do whatever it takes to overthrow the yeah. death penalty. That's too small of a goal? Or what's the um, well, my 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 uh, the reason I brought this up is because you you seem to say that if someone broke into your house and was threatening you, that taking up arms against them is an okay option. Yeah. Seems I mean, very I different than the attitude in Hunger Games. Uh, um Yeah, well, basically it's been, uh, the reason I did, said that with the Hunger Games is like because um, you're afraid of the maiming guy, me? No, it's it's. Um, I want to also give a bit of a like middle finger to whoever put me on that island. Um, well, I think that's the same attitude the existentialists are taking, right? God stands silently by, so give a middle finger to God and yeah, work quietly. But for that's the only true if you think that God has sort of put us in this. That's only true if you think that God has put us in this game and everything that is wrong with the world is wrong in the, with the world by God's design. Whereas in the Christian witness, that's not the case. That what's wrong with the world is our disobedience and God has actually come to die to fix it. Um, um, which is another wrinkle in, in this sort of existentialist thing is like, anyway, whatever. I was going to talk about the, the death of God being a good thing. Um, okay. Well, I, ha- I have another further question that takes this one step further sure. and maybe a little more political. So silence is maybe not, at least according to you, the great answer to the death penalty, right? But by corollary, is silence consent? And so what I mean is often there are are cries that if you are not for a cause, if I'm not for the legalization of gay marriage, then I am consenting to hurting those people. So do you have to take a side or is silence an appropriate response to a lot of controversy? Not just, you know, like taking up arms against those who are wanting to kill somebody. But do I, like, am I obligated as a person in this world, someone who is advocating for good, to take sides on things? What if I don't vote? Am I in the wrong? What if we as a podcast don't take a position on the LGBTQ agenda? Are we in the wrong? Do we need to come out and say, hey, we as a podcast are for X, Y, or Z? Like, are we, by our silence, complicitly supporting the wrong side or is silence an okay response to these controversies? Silence is totally an okay response to these controversies. Are we being... But not to violence. Huh? But but not to something like Nazism. Because the earlier question was, is it, yeah, should the person kind of withdraw and not engage in it? You said no, they should fight for the thing that they care about. Now you're saying that silence is is a viable option. But that's not inconsistent if you say if silence is a viable option, you pick what you respond to, right? Isn't that the answer to the contradiction you're trying to set up? Well, what do you mean? So like uh, there are, you know, part of the problem on this kind of like um, not commenting is uh, complicity with whatever position is. There's so many positions to take, uh, so many issues to take positions on that it's you, you would be spending your entire time taking positions on each of those different issues. So by definition, you have to pick and choose which things you talk about, which ones you support, which ones you go after, right? So in this case, this person would be saying, I'm opposed to the death penalty. That's the issue I care about. But kind of by definition, they're taking silence on all other issues. 
I you, think I'm tracking. Okay. <laughs> but do you think, does, is that inconsistent in some way? That, sorry, I'm, I'm having trouble putting together the argument. Uh, my question is just like, if, if I'm not allowed to take, take stepping away from the death penalty. But you could. Are you opposed to that, Graham? To what? Stepping away from the death penalty as, the, as this issue that someone cares about. Isn't, that's your question, AJ. But I mean, that, wasn't that what we established earlier? That y- the saying, I don't want a piece of this and I won't take part in anything that means the death of another person isn't a viable reaction. Like, we are not allowed to do that. If Nazism is a thing, we should be picking up a gun. Then isn't that the case in every other situation where there is no. maybe a, a good or an evil? No, there, have, is, to be, there have to be scales to these things, right? Like, there's, there's, some, there's, some diff- so there's something different between fascism taking over a country and the implementation of Nazism versus um, um, some issue that's only going to matter in 2023 you know, like like sea salt or normal salt. Which yeah, is like there there has to be some difference in those different um, in those issues, and so so at some point you should yeah you need to take a position and do something about it. Yeah, and like I think most people should probably like not respond to every you, you take your your sea salt one is is a silly example, but like things of that level you shouldn't be commenting on all the time. Like well, yeah, when what do you mean by commenting? Like. Taking so, aside. But taking aside and then sort of becoming, having like a building up a, a public persona about some sort of kind of issue. Um, I, I think I, every man needs to have some, needs to know where they stand on issues in case they find themselves in a position where they need to make a decision, right. where that issue is very pertinent in their life. But that everybody needs to like sort of Stake out. write out exactly what they think and then like widely pr- distribute it as if, there needs to be some sort of press conference on what Graham Donaldson thinks about stuff is yeah. is like not is very silly and also very arrogant on my part to think that anybody cares should care. But then would you be con- consenting to whichever side is in the wrong? No, no, because there's so many different ways to understand an issue that it's not this binary thing. It's not. It's it can't be if you're either with us, or you're against us. Um, so saying. If you're not for X, you therefore de facto must be against X in these five ways. It's like you have no idea what I think about X. Right. Um, I could have a very nuanced and charming position on X. <laughs> <laughs> so, so say for trans rights, like you, you abstain from talking about it. Doesn't that allow their rights to be taken away? No. Because the other part is that no matter what Graham tweets about that, it's not going to change anything. Like he is not in a position to be influencing policy one way or the other other than voting or blowing us stuff up i guess yeah um but then that's just a we just have a distaste of violent uh, protest right like isn't that the so does this does this all boil who down has the to, right who is sort of is who has the vision that they can inject themselves into society and say this is the way things need to go and i'm going to use violence in order to get to it like that's every soldier uh, no, no, because no, oh, every true. soldier is coming from commands from yeah. a government. Right. So this really just comes down, you know, it's a question of like that. What, do you do you place any degree of a? Does the government have any authority over your life or not? It's also a question, I think, not of just governmental authority, but at what point do you draw the line where you're saying, okay, this this is an issue that is serious enough that I need to involve myself. That like I'm gonna, it re- that requires to, human action. And I guess that's the next and question. And disobedience. Is, and possibly disobedience. Yeah. But if I'm, say, fighting for trans rights, I don't know that that requires disobedience. 
Why not? I mean, it might. Might. Or it might just mean writing my legislators. Um, but at what point do, like, I guess my next question is where, where is that line? Like, where do you guys draw your line? Where should our listeners draw their line? That, like, this issue is serious enough that I need to involve myself. That I need to become socially engaged in some way? Yes. That's a good question. Do you, I don't even know how to answer this question. I feel like Graham's probably, uh, yeah. You're going to say that there's some point where you should be promoting certain positions. And I feel like I usually end up at, like, most people should live a quiet life and raise a good family. And, like, to think that your purpose is to, like, have some kind of, motivation for social engagement is just setting yourself up for disappointment and yeah. failure. No, I, I think I agree with you on that, Thomas. Yeah. I mean, I asked this partially as a, as a personal question because I'm, I'm typically not involved at all in politics. Yeah. I refrain from commenting. I often don't even con- comment to my students. I say, here are the two positions. Here are the problems I see with each. So is, am I in the wrong that I am not spending my weekends getting more involved in situations where people are being actively hurt? No, I, uh, I don't, I think most of the this kind of like setting up of issues and there being one side mm-hmm. versus another, I think that's all marketing. Like I think that's all to put people into boxes that are easy to sell things to, be that a political figure, be that hmm. like actual products. Like I think Graham's answer is onto something of like all issues are complicated. It's fine to have personal nuanced opinions on lots of things, but if you're able to boil it down to I'm for or against the slate of current topics, like you've been marketed. You've been bilked? Yeah, you've been bilked. You you, you are being sold political media and the one that will fit you into the right slot. And that's the purpose of like all, and again, this is kind of a tangent from what you're talking about, but um, I just think that we as individuals have such little impact into those issues. I think it's important to vote. I think it's important to be informed, but to like be on Twitter all day, like talking about your political opinions, like I think that's, that's hell on earth, right? Like, that th- mm-hmm. there's no good that comes from that. <laughs> and there's also, there's things that get lost in the nuances that there are, the answers can change based on the like subsidiary. So you somewhat, it is perfectly reasonable to me that somebody has a position that they think would, should be enshrined into law for America that they would not allow their, they would have a very different position for how their family is governed. Right or have a very different position of mm-hmm. what they think that they're, how their church should behave. So like, you know, someone could say, I don't, I think it's silly to take cell phones away or to not like have cell phones for children, but they are not having Never it in my to. family. Right. Or like legalizing weed. I think it's fine for le- le- weed to be legal in Texas, but my kids won't be smoking it. Like that kind of and thing. And so, and I think that, yes. So then, um, and so then what to like even summarize your position on social media, for it, your or, example, or even like, to say like, so where, where do you stand on these issues? It's like, pull up a chair. Like right. <laughs> this isn't, this is going to take, this is going to take some time. So, um, I think, I mean, another way to answer your, to ask your, frame your question, AJ is what has to happen for somebody to decide that they are the person to run for political office? Like that, I think that's a very, that's a very legitimate question yeah. that I think everybody needs to ask themselves at some point. Now I can't run for office in the U S probably a good thing. And you could. I yeah, can I? see what happens. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you don't tell them right I away. I get deported. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, so Wait, it's, well, you can't run for any office like sheriff. Could you be sheriff? I'm not a citizen. You might be sheriff. I don't I think don't you can. I doubt it. I don't know. Should I find out right yeah. now? Yeah. Um, uh, I feel like sheriff. we need to know this. Anyway. So yes, but I think, I think Thomas is bang on when he says that the sort of modern landscape we have about like issues and being socially active is 100% marketing and is... Hmm. 
That's like, interesting because I mean they sell a lot of products to people who are products media. I mean that's the oh, it's, it's media selling media. selling products. You're selling politicians. You're selling you also get lifestyles. Funny, yeah, I was gonna because then the lifestyles and like you get this kind of grouping of brands that would be called so quote unquote conservative, quote unquote liberal, and then mm. I mean it, like Anheuser Busch. Yeah, put you or, in a slot. Yeah, yeah, the recent yeah. So it just puts you in a slot that makes it easier to you sell get, stuff. You get you yeah. get silly things like there are people for whom their like their professional careers they are a professional protester and yeah. they like will go from city to city whenever there's some kind of rally that happens and they have financial backing for them to go be organizers of like local constituents over X issue and they just travel the country doing this. Who's paying their bills? Whoever has some sort of vested interest in whatever the cause is that they're fighting for. Mm. Um, right. So, so, so is it when, I mean, I'm trying to draw where the line is, is it where, when evil begins to ride roughshod over good and triumph in the world, is that when men should stand up? Like when good people are dying, is that the issue? I think it's when you get invaded. Invasion? Invasion <laughs> is enough? Would be, yeah. I guess. And that, then that's how you come to a justification for World War II, just since fighting the Nazis is where yeah. we started this. Yeah. Um, like people say, oh man, we should have, we should have gone after Hitler beforehand. And taking him out, but we're doing that with 2020 hindsight, right? Like, right. we didn't know the monster he was in 1937. Right. Um, and in doing that, like, and we've used that to justify things saying, like, oh, well, you know, um, what's his face in Syria? Is just, It's the same thing with Hitler. He's, he's gassing his people. And, and, and we use that as justifications for incurs- incursions. And uh, I don't think I'm cool with that kind of thing. I don't, I don't that kind of reasoning of, of, uh, anyway, maybe it's a case by case scenario, but, Mm. um, but, uh, there's, yeah, there is something about having a society that allows freedom for people to raise families and to practice their faith and to, uh, enter into commerce. So like the very foundation of Western society of the United States and then protecting that way of life. I, I don't, I don't see the moral, um, hand, I don't, I don't, I don't like, I want to know what the existentialists would have against that. Hmm. Okay. That's probably the end of that question. I don't think we have enough time for, our, for my second question. That was pretty Today? much an hour. Oh, sorry. No, totally. Okay. Yeah. It means that there's probably going to be a part two. We have to discuss the sermons given by the priests. If I don't get to it, you should read the book. I mean, the, the priest says some very interesting things, but I think it would be a, we haven't ever done a podcast on the problem of pain. Have we? In the theodicy. Lewis's book? No, just the, the, the problem, problem oh, of pain. No, I don't think so. Uh, you did the Odyssey at some point. Uh, I did the Odyssey. Because we made the, the Odyssey I did the joke. Odyssey. But <laughs> I didn't you, do well, there, no, the, you did the Odyssey because we made that joke. Yeah, that exact same joke. That exact same joke. Really? Yes. Yeah, that's all we do. Yeah, we just repeat ourselves. We, we've been doing this for six or seven so years. We so might, we might have that episode already. If we don't, I'll be making it next time. Let's do it again. Yeah. Really? Uh, what are people going to do? Email <laughs> us in, in anger? They could. I mean, they could cut off our support on Patreon. Oh, well, actually, silence. we don't touch that money anyway. Silence is an option. Ah, no, silence see, is, uh, if, the, if you don't email us, we can assume all sorts of things about you. Full support. You are center. complicit with our <laughs> redoing of episodes. <laughs> you let our evil run roughshod over that good. Uh, was it your St. Augustine episode? Is that the one where you would have talked about the, the problem of evil? the sin is literally nothing? Yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about that, but we haven't talked, we haven't done like a rundown of here are the answers to the problem of evil. I think it was in your St. Augustine episode. Was it? Maybe not. I could be making this up. Probably the listeners. Mm-hmm. That was about why evil, it doesn't exist. Doesn't exist, yeah. 
Oh, are we at the classical stuff you got wrong section of the book? You can do whatever sure, you want. Yeah, to so there. we got a classical things we, we got wrong. Well, it's not really a classical we, there thing. There have been so many been that we lot. haven't brought up. Yeah, but in our last episode we did like months ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> two weeks uh, ago. There was, uh, uh, at the end we were like, we're going to do a fun fact for people that stay and listen to the podcast. And I talked about the beer song. Yeah. So wrong on that. My, <laughs> really? So my memory, my has With mushed. With a bucket of yeah, beer. Yeah, bucket beer, of beer. beer my beer. memory has mushed two things together. One. Um, all you need's a fiver and a sober driver is a song called Beer Run. Oh. And it's B-E-E-R-R-U-N, Beer Run, Beer Run. So there's a song. I'm not liking this at all. What? Well, that's a great song. Okay. Um, and then. What is happening? Sometimes you run out. You gotta go. So, so there was a Beer Run song, and then there was the Beer, 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 Ba 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 Beer, which was another song in Canadian culture. And I mushed culture. those two things together thinking it was one ad, but really there's a song called Beer Run, and there wasn't a bucket of beer. It was called a Bubba. A bubba of a beer. A bubba of beer. And basically what it was was a mini keg. Um, oh, a bubba. Yeah, a bubba <laughs> of beer. And so I, I conflated those <laughs> two things. Now, sure, I but um, uh, Well, I think what happened is you're just a marketing genius. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So uh, so for all those people that me- texted us or messaged me and said, like, I'm think- I think you're thinking of this, like, Obscure. Alabama yeah. country artist who sang B-E-E-R-R-U-N beer run. And and I was like, and then I yes, so that I told that was classical stuff I got wrong. I wouldn't even call it that. Classical. Are we still getting emails? Yeah, we get emails all the time. Should oh, I answer some of those? Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I haven't sure. our thing in ages. Oh, I recommend we, it. It's great. We always uh, tag all the emails that you need to reply to. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I've definitely stopped doing that. Jeez, I did Louise. that for a while, but people anyway, like people weren't replying to emails. So I reply emails. Well, good for you. I I haven't even opened it yeah, in yeah. forever. So if there's any like, hey, you guys are great, I haven't seen those, or hey, you guys are idiots, I haven't seen those. But either. thanks for those emails. Uh, yeah. Emails Keep up the guys at classicalstuff.net. We do read them. I just don't read. I well, what happened is I lost my smartphone. My smartphone was where I would scroll through that that email box and. I just haven't checked it at school. So yeah. I think because I forgot our password. You'll have to, shouldn't tell me now. Yeah, don't tell, tell, uh, right, are you ready? <laughs> right, 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 <laughs> yes, are you ready? Oh, tell hey, me you ready to get a pencil. It's <laughs> I hate Graham. Uh, no. Uh, I guess it's I, apparently I hate existentialism. Yeah, because that's, that's, uh, Camus is the worst is our, is our new password. He is not the worst. His books are pretty enjoyable. You guys should read them. I don't think existentialism is the plague these guys do. Uh, see, <laughs> see, it's all connected a lot. Yeah. All right. Uh, this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. I think I just said it, but the email address is theguys at classicalstuff.net. You can find us online at classicalstuff.net. You can find us on Patreon where we post our in-between discussions after each episode and our monthly AMAs, which I get, which, 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 we, which we will be recording today. Uh, so uh, patreon.com slash classical stuff. We are on Twitter, twitter.com slash classical stuff, C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. And I think that's it. Anything I'm forgetting? Nope. Nope. Cool. Well, uh, thanks, everyone. And we will see you all next week. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.